Hey everyone, today I'm joined by Julian Davey. Uh, Julian is a longtime contributor to metamodern ideas, uh, specifically around metamodern spirituality. Um, there's a particular essay that I kind of consider pretty pretty seminal, a bit of a primer, really. It's kind of a perfect introduction. And as I've revisited it, uh, it just becomes more and more pertinent. And uh, anyway, I wanted to uh, use this opportunity with Julian to kind of dig into this essay and unpack some things and maybe go a bit deeper with the specific elements. Uh, it's called Towards a Metamodern Spirituality. And uh, Julian, thanks so much for being here and appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to be here. It was um, quite a long time ago that I did the essay and in doing my reading of it, I've sort of got re-inspired and lots of stuff that I've been learning in the past couple of years, I feel like is built on those foundations. So I'm excited to talk that's about That's awesome. It. Is there anything too that you want to throw into the mix about yourself in terms of kind of contextualizing your relationship with metamodernism, metamodern spirituality, any of that? No, I think let's dive into the essay. <laughs> okay. All right, great. Get to the uh, meat of it. <laughs> get to the meat of it. Sure. Sounds good. All right. Well, cool. Well, let's just dive right in then. So um, you begin with kind of setting the stage uh, for metamodernism. You talk about you know, what modernism is or was, what postmodernism is about, and then you introduce metamodernism. Um, and you kind of distinctly tie that to the metacrisis and, and the distinct crises that are uh, really the, the, the nature of our current cultural moment. Um, and then you say, uh, what would a spirituality look like that actually helped us confront the crises of our world um, a spirituality that forced us to engage with the issues of our time rather than helping us to run away from them. This would be a metamodern spirituality. It would be a spirituality that would help us birth the phoenix, which is our metaphor for the world that wants to emerge from the ashes of our current collapsing and chaotic society. Um, so that kind of, for me, was sort of setting the stage. And I don't know if there's anything up front before we get into some of the specific characteristics that you talk about as, as um, kind of uh, being characteristic of a metamodern spirituality, but is there anything about kind of just contextualizing this within metamodernism and metamodernity that you want to dig into first? Yeah, I was going to to share a little bit about why modernist spirituality or postmodern spirituality can't really be an answer to the crisis. So modernity is is the thing that's the engine that's really causing the the meta crisis, I guess, and a lot of the problems um that we see in the world and so it's not going to be the solution itself because it's coming from this mindset that is doing the damage and there's that famous einstein quote about you don't solve the problem with the mindset that you create it with or whatever right right and and then postmodern approach or spirituality or whatever is also not going to be enough to solve the problem because it's purely focused on deconstructing and tearing down the edifice, the sort of modernism built this house out of reason and science and technology and was really excited about where the house was going, that it was gonna be this beautiful house that would last forever and be filled with beautiful things and everyone would be happy. And the postmodernists take a look at the house and they see the foundations that it's built on, which maybe is colonialism and white supremacy and all of this sort of unsteady foundations of our culture and try and rip the house down and say, this isn't the house. Why are you doing this? Look at the damage it's causing to the world. 
but that approach isn't enough to, to really build anything else. I guess a lot of your listeners have, are aware of metamodernism as a concept and that really idea is, okay, we need to somehow move beyond that postmodern moment into a state where we can actually start to create again. We're not just deconstructing, we're creating a new society and a new culture and using the criticisms of postmodernism and weaving that in with some of the vision and possibility of modernism. And I think where I've, I've shifted a lot in the past, well, recently, is quite often I hear it described as being modernism and postmodernism, that metamodernism kind of moves back and forward between modernism and postmodernism. And I, I really think it's, it's more of like this integration. It's where the modernist approach and the postmodern approach kind of come together in this whole, it's not, it's not both of them, it's a distinct new thing. Yeah, actually, so what exactly, and it's, it's interesting because this has been sort of a, a kind of theoretical debate in metamodern uh, discussions, right? Because the initial formulation of metamodernism from the cultural theorists, the Dutch cultural theorists, um, you know, Tim Vermeulen and Robin van den Acker, uh, framed it as an oscillation back and forth. Um, and, and it's been interesting to see how that framing, which is pretty, they actually go to a certain pains to, to, to try to, um, avoid, you know, the language of say like dialectical synthesism or, uh, you know, like, a, a um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's the thesis, the antithesis and the synthesis, you know, they, in a kind of Hegelian sense, they, they, they're, they're like, no, nah, it's not really quite it. It's, it's an oscillation. But as the term has sort of been taken up by different communities that I think are, are really actively involved in the sorts of reconstructive efforts that you're talking about, there does seem to be a concerted sense that, uh, a kind of pushback against that framing of it, that it is a, 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 a synthesis in the way that you're talking about, right? Because if you, if you use sort of a Hegelian sense of like, you know, there's a thesis, there's an antithesis, and the synthesis is when these two things form something new out of those earlier parts that isn't just those two things together, right? It really is a, a kind of new entity, um, which is, I think, a little bit what you were just kind of gesturing at. And, um, and I, I, I'm inclined to agree with that. I think that um, when metamodernism was sort of initially being framed, uh, that there might have been a certain use for the oscillation metaphor, uh, especially kind of in a cultural studies context. But I think other contexts have sort of, you know, brought to brought to the fore that um, that kind of dialectical element. And I, I think that this I think it's important. And I agree basically with that would be um, my take on it. Um, I don't know if there's anything more you want to say about the the, the kind of reconstructive element before we dive in or or uh, we can just hit the different elements of the essay. Yeah, let's get going. Awesome. All right. So um, the first thing you talk about is uh, building a proto-synthesis grand narrative. Now, this is uh, very dear to my heart, um, and, and, and I would locate this within that reconstructive effort that you're kind of talking about here. Um, as in that kind of modernist vein, there was sort of a na naive sense of, you know, based on enlightenment principles and reason and everything like that, we'll create this, you know, society uh, that'll be perfect, et cetera, this kind of utopian vision. Um, on the one hand, that was sort of that, that narrative. And then the postmodern uh, critique of that is sort of, 
as you say, kind of going at the foundations and, and undermining it. And as Leotard kind of famously suggested that postmodernity was characterized specifically by an incredulity towards grand narratives. And, uh, and so out of that kind of those parts comes this synthetic um, kind of third element of, uh, of this proto-synthesis. Um, there are a couple lines here I'll just read and then, and then yeah, let's dig in a little bit. Um, well, you say yourself, a key feature of postmodernism was the abandoning of all grand narratives. An overarching story of life is seen to be limiting and oppressive. Any attempt to create a grand narrative can easily be deconstructed based on its cultural and value assumptions. Um, postmodernism realized that many of the things we take for granted in the world around us are simply stories we tell ourselves. The metamodern move, you're right, is to begin to return to grand narratives once again. We need overarching stories that show us our place in the cosmos, give us meaning in life, and help us battle the meta crisis within. Um, so, anyway, yeah, uh, we'll say more about this sort of notion of uh, protosynthesis grand narrative. So, the metamodernist doesn't disagree with the postmodernist. That, that it's all just stories, that it's all made up, that it's all a creation. They're totally in agreement with that, but their difference is they don't think that's a problem. They think that stories can be useful and powerful, and we need stories to orientate ourselves and live a meaningful life. It's almost the story that we create about reality that gives our lives meaning. And so, when we've gone to this postmodern thing of tearing down all the grand narratives, we're just, we're stuck in this nihilistic, meaningless place. Where we, we don't have anything to orientate ourselves around. I think another factor in that, that postmodern part is this sort of splitting up of culture and of stories. So it's almost each group is getting into a smaller and smaller story that they share in their little group and they don't share with anyone else. And there's this Jungian thing about the inner world, about differentiation and in integration. So the, the mind becomes whole through some differentiation and some integration. And there's sort of a balance that that's the flow of life is the differentiation and integration. And if we look at the world, we can also look at the culture through that kind of lens. And if we look out there in the world, what we see is this massive differentiation. So more and more splitting. And that's really the product of the postmodernist era. Um, it's sort of like choose your own worldview in the supermarket. And there's one worldview specifically for you or specifically for your group. And you don't really need to talk to anyone else. And the building of this protosynthesis grand narrative is to start to do the work of, of integrating again. And I had this idea of, we're starting the, the conversation. The conversation begins, which is actually communicating and trying to understand each other. I know in the game B world, they have this like ruler maker and various ways of communicating. And there's a lot of, a lot of the work I do is about how we can communicate with each other. How can people who are on other sides maybe a Christian person, how can they have a dialogue with a Buddhist person and integrate, come to some shared understanding of reality? And through that kind of process and this conversation between people, cultural conversation that we need and want to happen, we can get to this place where 
some grand narrative has kind of emerged. And I really enjoyed reading your wind article recently. Thanks. And that's a common, common grand narrative that people come to, especially in the metamodern world, is about complexity and self-organizing systems and how when you look at the natural world, you see this directionality. And that's where we really go on in the next section. But maybe you want to add, want to comment on what I've said. Well, yeah, no, I, so I think that's a great segue into the next thing about uh, what you also mentioned about teleology and complex systems. But let's, uh, before we jump to that, though, because I do think it's totally, it ties right into this. And as you say, that essay is sort of about trying to, to make that move. Um, but before kind of thinking about what the grand narratives are, I think there's sort of, there's, a, I think just starting the piece there is important because it orients to towards like the, the nature of, of at least one really important reconstructive project that needs to happen while also articulating some of the limiting parameters, right? It's sort of like, so if there was a sort of hegemonic grand narrative or a master narrative um, that characterized modernity and, you know, uh, traditional religion before that, um, and to take a note from that, as being like, well, there's some serious pitfalls in doing that of just sort of like blanketly, you know, uh, laying over all the differences, papering them all over and sort of like bringing everything or attempting to bring everything towards this sort of homogeneity under a single particular uh, idea or narrative. That's problematic and it's it's hard. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's potentially destructive, it's potentially sort of silencing of difference and, and it kind of forces something that, that um, you know, it's sort of like, uh, uh, it's almost like, you know, that you, I, you use this metaphor about like the individual psyche as being, having its constituent parts that kind of, you know, the integration of those parts is sort of what leads to kind of psychic wholeness um, and kind of a, a health and salutary um, kind of psychology. And Lehman Pascal makes this point a lot, and I find it very, very compelling and, and convincing about thinking about spirituality itself as being the endeavor that creates a certain surplus coherence that um, that is analogous to what happens within the individual of parts coming together into an integrated whole, and then religion doing that sort of culturally, collectively. Um, and and that could be something we could return to with the teleology idea. But uh, but just to finish that thought, there's something dangerous about the way that that this sort of grand narrative thinking occurred under uh, traditional religion and modernity um, that postmodernity in some ways attempted to correct for by sort of hyper focusing on in you know the the constituent parts and the particularization. But of course, that leads to that fragmentation that you're talking about and the breakdown of the meta narrative or the grand narrative into micro narratives so that you don't you lose a, the semblance of integration and, and everything starts falling apart. Um, well, yeah, falling apart, which, again, is sort of a thing that we're experiencing right now. So I, I love the way that you're kind of framing it as the in integration of those various micro narratives through discussion and discourse, because right now there's sort of like a in, in post-modernity and the post-modern discourse, there's such a kind of stay in your own lane kind of mentality of like, oh, you have your narrative, I'll have my narrative. And like, you know, you can't understand my narrative because you don't have my experiences and I, you know, that sort of a thing. And it seems like there's definite limitations to that way of going about 
dealing with the reality of the multiplicity and the plurality of different narratives in the world that is sort of propelled us to engage in the kind of connection and 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 listening that you're talking about which also kind of brings up to my ears you know the idea of the listening society and all that so to kind of funnel all that into like a question how do we how do we do this in the right way and i think you're probably the perfect person to ask because as you say you do a whole lot of work around remediation and and communication how do we actually successfully bridge the divides that exist between narratives um, in a in a way that can respect their kind of intrinsic inherent differences while also uh, so, uh, bringing them together into an, a larger order whole. You know, that seems to be the challenge. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? So when you were first sharing, there was a little bit about Habermas that I wanted to share that I think fits in really well. And then I can talk about the more practical stuff. Sure. And yeah, Habermas is someone who's inspired me a lot recently. And I know it was also a big inspiration for Daniel Schmachtenberger and that kind of crew of people. And it's this really idea about, I guess he's also describing the practical part of it, of, of how communication kind of breaks down. So he has this idea of the life world, which is basically how we make sense of our reality. And it's the stories that we have about our world, the kind of grand narratives that we were talking about that make our, our lives make sense. And we have a shared life world, we share it together. And he says that that life world has been colonized. So in the same way that we went and colonized in America and Africa and all over the world, we've colonized ourselves and our own stories and cultures about the world. Like, you can see it as languages dying out and local cultures dying out as this sort of life world being degraded and our meaning kind of being stripped out of experience. And it's the life world that floods meaning into every experience that we have. And his solution to that is this thing called communicative rationality, which is basically about rationality based on communication rather than based on instrumentality, which is kind of getting something out of the rationality. And I hope that's not too high in the sky, um, but maybe that will send some people in that direction. It's really amazing sure. stuff. Uh, and then the more practical thing, I guess what I wanted to say was, it's about realizing that wherever anyone is coming from, there is some truth in whatever they are saying. And they could be any of the spiral dynamic stages wherever they're coming from, there is something that they're holding that is important. And it's quite easy for us when we connect with someone that we, we're constantly trying to figure out what's wrong with their position or how our position is better or how they don't see the full picture. And it's almost the reverse is to go towards the truth in whatever the person is saying and amplify that and in nonviolent communication, there's this thing about tragic expression of needs. So I could be, be a violent person and I could be killing someone in the street or doing some really heinous crime. And the idea is that underneath that is some need that I'm trying to get filled, which might be my need for connection or meaning or belonging or something. And I've just created this sort of perverted 
way of meeting that need. And if we can go to people and speak at the level of the need of what they really care about, then we're actually able to, to talk to their humanity rather than talking to the defensive part of themselves that is mm. out doing these awful things. Yeah, it, it, you know, in the conversations that I've been having with John Verveke and Layman Pascal about the religion that's not a religion and everything, and about trying to formulate wisdom traditions through these ecologies of practices, in large part as part of this sort of reconstructive, I, I view it the, through this lens, that it's part of the reconstructive grand narrative uh, kind of um, project, which because as you note, like it's recognized as stories, it's sort of willfully owned and, 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 uh, and appreciated as such so that that allows you to be constructive about it um, and artful about it, which is kind of the, the key lens again, for me is sort of the artful nature in which we can construct stories that can be um, beneficial. Um, in that notion of ecologies of practices, it, it seems like the skills that you're talking about need to be part of that. Like we need to learn these skills, these communicative skills as part of this ecology of practices so that instead of um, people interacting with each other on the basis of difference and, and seeking, you know, to find the ways in which this person doesn't align with the way I see it. And therefore I need to kind of, you know, aggressively make my point and triumph over theirs, et cetera. We need to kind of flip that around, as you say, and like learn these skills, which don't come naturally, I, I would say, or at least maybe naturally isn't the right word, but certainly not skills that we're kind of primed for through our educational uh, kind of backgrounds. Um, and there's a particular way of doing it. I see certain people do it very effectively, and I'm always impressed by it. Um, it sort of leans into the the, the yes anding rather than, you know, the, the contrarian factor. And it creates a sense of goodwill. And I think it is that sort of pull towards integration. Um, so anyway, I just, within the context of grand narrative reconstruction and ecologies of practices that kind of facilitate uh, and are part of that project, I think these communication skills are sort of vital to that enterprise. Um, I don't know if you have any more thoughts on that or if you want to then move into the next step. Yeah, <laughs> so much to unpack. Um, I think a key thing for me has really been starting to believe or have faith somehow that an integration is possible, that there is there's this idea of first principles way of thinking about it. Also, Daniel Smachtenberger talks about this as well, um, which is the idea that you can, in any domain, that you're in, you can seek out the first principles, which are the sort of bottom layer that explains how the things work. And you could kind of imagine different traditions have different words for these principles. And so in this tradition, it's called this thing, in that tradition, it's called this thing, but underneath it is some fundamental truth about how life works, what it means to be alive and how to live a good life, so to speak. And those principles, you know, you can have a conversation where people realize that there is a common principle between the two things that they're talking about. And through that, you can start to like bridge the gap between the people. And just seeing that that's possible 
is really a, a mind-blowing thing. Yeah, well, actually, so to that point, because thanks, because I, I wanted to also touch on this before we leave this topic of grand narrative reconstruction. Um, so you you write this in the piece, our, our metamodern spiritual grand narrative should be a synthesis of all our knowledge and understanding about the world. It should break down the centuries-old division between science and religion. But we should recognize that it's always incomplete, always ripe for updating, and we should hold it lightly as the deconstructible story that we know it is. And I find this to be really compelling uh, to try to tie to, try, tie together some of these threads here because, um, okay, so the notion of, of, a, of a grand narrative, so picking up on what you were saying about th- that, that something like this integration is possible because at the root of things, there is something that we, that we do share, however much it might be differently expressed or, or um, you know. And I think, again, just recognizing and, and appreciating that is sort of part of this metamodern move in the sensibility. I think that the postmodern sensibility was much more about trying to sort of find radical alterities, right? And appreciating that, oh no, you think that you see something that, that, that kind of unites you with this other person, this other group, but you know, that's just you projecting yourself onto them and all this sort of a thing. And so I think that we're sort of waking up to like the idea that no, we really, you know, there are commonalities here, right? There, there are, um, you know, what, uh, what Ihab Hassan calls the soft universals, you know, um, and not platonic, but, but empirical and that we can work from those. Um, and so the notion that there's some kind of shared element to the narrative here is also um, really interesting to me, which is where I think there's, there's an overlap here, or at least a, a yeah, point of overlap with the relationship of science and religion, or the relationship of science and kind of spiritual narratives. Because um, what I'm seeing happening is with this shift to re-engaging grand narrative thinking and synthetic thinking, um, there's been an emergent narrative that has come out of the sciences and empirical studies uh, that I think can and I and 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 I hope will kind of form that shared collective basis about reality in the sense that okay, let me try to unpack this just a little bit. Um, so when we operate in kind of public space, um, we do employ scientific understandings of reality as sort of a common basis for, for working with things. Um, you know, which this is part of the tensions that I think have existed in, in post-modernity as well, right? Because like, okay, so you go to public school and you learn about evolution. Well, in some ways that kind of runs counter to another person's narrative, maybe if they're a creationist, let's say. And yet we still maintain that, no, like we need to work from certain kind of empirical principles if we're going to be doing things in a universal public space like this. And so that means we'll be employing the kind of narratives that we're getting from the empirical sciences. And, and, and so starting from that standpoint, which I think on the whole has created a public space in which we can share a sense of the way that the world works, even as we can also recognize that not everyone necessarily will buy into that particular narrative. All that is just to kind of set up the idea that science um, 
is a potential grounding for a shared view of the world. And Greg Enriquez talks, talks about this in his book, um, Unified Theory of, of Psychology, too, that like we can have principles that unite us on that level. Now, what's interesting to me, this is the point I'm trying to make here, is that I think in the past 30 years or so, we've seen a, a really fascinating shift where um, it used to be very much that, okay, religious narratives provided a sense of you know, purpose, direction, value, teleology, and scientific narratives were just like, no, that that doesn't exist. And there is no teleology. And there is no, you know, uh, any sense of kind of uh, relative value in any of that. It's just, you know, reductionist sort of thing. But with the introduction of these complex sciences, and the introduction of, uh, of, of new models for uh, understanding reality based on complexity, you're beginning to see a kind of shared scientific narrative that has some elements of what used to be of great value from the religious narratives. And so that's what I'm getting at. That's what that essay about the wind was about. And, um, and, and, and so to kind of take us into the next um, kind of topic about teleology, that was sort of what I wanted to bring up. Um, and so, well, yeah, why don't we just jump right into that? Um, because Okay, so the next section that you talk about, uh, section two, is the return of teleology. And uh, you write, um, part of this new metamodern spiritual grand narrative might include a return to teleology. Uh, you write, but with the rise of complex system science, there is the possibility for a kind of teleology to make a return. Whilst complex system science doesn't suggest that a cup wants to be a cup, the way that maybe you know traditional teleology would have thought about things, it does suggest that the parts of a cup self-organize in a complex system, and the overall result of that is a movement toward cupness. That's their teleology. Um, and there are many ways in which this kind of complex systems framing of reality uh, kind of, I think, opens up the door again to um, things like, yes, teleology, but then also by association value, um, things of that nature. So anyway, I'll stop rambling and, and get your thoughts on all this. But um, yeah, I don't know, dig into some some of this, uh, this topic. Yeah, I think the key shift is about embracing holes. So modernistic science is, is about parts thinking about breaking things into parts. And in this shift, in terms of maybe a modern science, we're talking about, okay, there are parts, but there are also holes and the holes like level up in complexity. And for a while I was getting really inspired by this idea called the edge of chaos, which is basically the point between order and chaos. You imagine the point just where you water is about to freeze. The point between, between the chaos of the water and the order of the, the solidness. And you can almost see that point as being the, the place where life happens, where the complexity comes out of that space. And you could see that in so many domains. You could see it in spiritual domains. So there's this idea of entropic brain theory, um, which is about is a psychedelic paper by Calvin Harris, I think, um, which is about okay, when you hit this point in the brain, that's when you get, and um, the psychedelic experience happens when the brain has got too ordered and then you shift towards this state and life happens, complexity emerges, new stuff, new thoughts happen, etc. And the same thing in the natural world, it's kind of 
its normal state is flowing towards more negentropy is what people call it where so you've got the entropy of the universe um and then there are these little patches where more complexity emerges and that complexity you can kind of see it as this pattern of more complexity emerging more cooperation emerging and more consciousness emerging those are the big three that come to mind and the evolution of of life is the um, the growth of those things or the sort of leveling up of the the holes so you get the next level of holes which has some cooperation between the holes between the parts which are actually holes which gives you the next hole and etc and i guess my grand vision of that is okay so we're the we're these humans human parts what, what is it going to be like when we have a, a whole human community organism that is is actually working that we haven't reached yet we haven't quite got to that point yet yeah and exactly and that's to to bring that that thing back what i was talking about Layman Pascal's notion of, you know, surplus coherence and thinking about religion as being the, the function of, of, of doing that, <laughs> of leveling up uh, our parts into a, a greater whole um, through complexification and through integration. And, um, and to think about that as being the very nature of the religious sort of impulse or the nature of the religious project, um, you know, like Emile Durkheim, the sociologist um wrote a book really influential book on religion elementary forms of religious life talks about a collective effervescence and what people do in groups and the the sense of like ecstatic you know energy that that kind of takes hold of people when they're collectively you know united and sort of uh oriented towards a particular thing um uh, which could be in a ritualistic context. It could be in a protest context. It could be all these things, right? But there's a sense of like, oh, there's this energy, there's this electricity, there's this thing that's sort of transcendent, you know? I think you get this at festival context too, right? There's this transcendent sense of being more than yourself. And in, in, a, and in a very real way, like you are, right? You're sort of, you're kind of like starting to plug into this thing that amongst all these different people you're doing collectively that leads to its own new leveled up whole, um, which is a fascinating idea when you think about that as a religious sensibility, that is the religious sensibility, arguably, or something like that, right? Which means that uh, the, the endeavor to produce a society that is more integrated and holistic and activating through its many parts a surplus energy and directional kind of orientation and power by means of its constituent parts to create something that is more than the sum of its parts, which is to say an emergent reality. That's a fascinating way of thinking about what it is that we mean by religion, right? And what we mean by, well, why do, why have these grand narratives and why think about teleology and why do ritual and community and, you know, but like, I've just seen a coalescence around, at least in my mind around all these things, all these different elements that I've been studying throughout, you know, my years of studying religion and, and, and culture and everything of like, yes, that makes so much sense 
Um, and I think it also helps, I don't want to say secularize the notion of religion, but it helps frame the religious project in a way that I think can be a lot more palatable to a lot more people. Um, so anyway, that was just kind of riffing on, on some of these things. Yeah, I love that. And I've been really inspired by Forrest Landry's work. And he has these really specific definitions about religion and spirituality and science and things. And he talks about religion in terms of building community. It's kind of an expression out in the world that we do together to build community, which really fits with what you're saying. And then the thing that really inspires me about it is that's a separate path. It's a separate sort of area of work to the science project and they can support each other. You know, building community, maybe we need lots of the insights of science, but they're, they're not um, in conflict. And the same with, so he, he has these six paths, um, which are really amazing. And which is like science and technology and spirituality and magic. And they're all separate domains of uh, work and experience and life. And they all have their separate purpose. And for us to create a culture that really works, we need to bring all of them in. Yeah, definitely. And actually, I think that that's a really good kind of segue well, we don't have to leave any of the things that we're talking about, hopefully, because all these things really do intermesh and interweave with each other in really, again, kind of interesting, fascinating ways. It kind of shows the sense that like, I don't know, I get the sense like, yes, we're really onto something here. Um, but the, the, the next section in, in the essay, the third section, you talk about traversing the transcendent imminent. So I just want to throw that in, into the mix a little bit here. Um, so uh, now you say... So my way of framing this, and in fact, well, okay, let me frame this first and then I'll throw it out. So um, there's, there's sort of this traditional dichotomy um, in thinking about, uh, well, the, the world that I think frames religious worldviews is, is there's a transcendent plane and then there's an imminent plane. The imminent plane is where we live. It's the mundane world. It's like the matter, it's the nature of stuff and material parts and, you know, like this kind of physical material world. And, and then and then there was a sense of the transcendent, which in traditional grand narratives was usually part of the sort of two worlds mythology. There was like another world, you know, whether that's heaven or, or you know, just this, this sacred uh, numinous realm that was of a, a fundamentally kind of different nature than the imminent world. And what you're talking about here is, is sort of um, a new sense of of this traditional dichotomy that is not uh, dualistic that way, but is actually sort of uh, sort of fused or so, as you say, um, so another important feature of a metamodern spirituality is, is uh, what is called the transcendent imminent. And then you define the imminent and the transcendent. Um, and then you say a big part of metamodernism is moving beyond this two world mythology. Why? Because by setting up a bipolarity, it inherently devalues our present moment experience and denigrates the imminent realm that most of us are forced to live within. Could this denigration of the imminent partly be to blame for our uncaring attitudes towards the natural world? I think so. If things like trees are just physical dreamlike manifestations in an imminent world that we must overcome, then why should we care for them? A metamodern spirituality will begin to see the transcendent within the imminent. It will begin to transcend into rather than out of a deeper and more embodied relationship with the world. And that to me is like, that's, 
yes, that's, I think, so I have this whole series. Um, well, actually I, it's a book, the metamodernism and the return of transcendence, um, is about this very topic. It's kind of de defining metamodernism and the metamodern sensibility shift as at least in some ways crucially bound up with that new uh, imagination of this transcendent being within the imminent. And it's the same thing, the video series, the after postmodernism series, it's based on that book is that's, that's what it's all about. Um, so anyway, I think you express it beautifully, but so, so unpack that a little bit more. What does it mean when you say the transcendent within the imminent that we transcend into rather than out of the world? Or maybe I could give a little example. So if you look at any of the traditions and kind of find this pattern, or at least the axial age traditions, so like Christianity and Buddhism, et cetera. And I think one of the things I've realized since I wrote this essay is that if you really go deep into those traditions, that's not actually what they're saying. They're not actually saying that there is this separation between the transcendent and the imminent, but it's almost, that's how it gets, ends up getting taught as it gets solidified into doctrine and whatever. So in Buddhism, you, we could talk about samsara, um, which is this sort of realm of form and realm of suffering. And nirvana as being a transcendent realm, something to achieve that we're not in yet. And that can give this sense of also of nihilism. It feels like quite postmodern, really. And this sense of okay, none of this stuff matters. And I think one of my explorations with this uh, is, okay, if we want a spirituality that's gonna face the climate crisis and is gonna face the physical problems in the world and inequality and lack of democracy and everything, having a spirituality that's sort of averse to the physical imminent world is a bit of a problem. And my idea with the transcendent imminent is, is almost this shift into okay, how can we find the divine in our experience? How do we bring as much divinity into our experience as possible? Which I think is exactly what the, the mystics were saying in any of these traditions at the beginning and what they were talking about and experiencing and practicing. And I think one thing that's, that's, that's shifted also from reading Forrest Landry a lot is realizing that it's not, the cult, a culture in the same way to these different paths, like a culture needs religion and needs spirituality. A culture also needs the values of the transcendent and it needs the values of the imminent. And Forrest also talks about the omniscient, which is a third thing. And it needs to find a balance between the values that come out of those different areas. And you could kind of see our culture as being a culture that is, has forgotten the transcendent and has forgotten the imminent really. And is hyper, all of its value is coming from the omniscient. And the omniscient is about understanding the world, about science and technology, and <clears throat> has lost, lost the importance of the present moment and has lost the importance of something greater being possible. And a healthy culture wants to, you know, we could also have a culture that swung the other way, that got too obsessed with the, the transcendent, for example, or too obsessed with the imminent. And none of those are going to create a fully life-giving culture because life is all of these things life not just in us but in the natural world it's got the imminent and transcendent in it and the omniscient in it and that's what the flow is is it's all of that stuff happening mm. 
Yes. Yes. Well, okay. A couple of things. One, I think that you make a really good point, which is that at sort of the esoteric levels of traditional religion, yes, I think that that dichotomy between imminent and transcendent um, is transcended, <laughs> actually. Um, and that and that what I think, I think it's fair to say that in the um, uh, in the kind of exoteric forms uh, of pedagogy and transmission and articulation of the world and the nature of of the cosmos and and the religious you know ground of being and all that it became this sort of dichotomy of transcendent imminent um almost maybe as sort of a condescension for a more simplistic way of, of framing that so that, you know, it's, it's easier to hold in your mind. Oh yes. You know, we live in the veil of tears, but the world beyond um, it's a lot harder to grasp, you know, these sort of paradoxical mystical notions that like form is emptiness and emptiness form, which I think is sort of the, the Buddhistic kind of framing of that transcending the imminent and the transcendent, or, you know, again, the, the, the Christian mystics like, like Eckhart and, and, and others who understood that, yeah, um, that these things aren't the way that simplistically they might have been taught or suggested. Um, so I think that that's, that's true. And I think that it can also then lead to some kind of confusion and even some frustration for people who really know a lot about traditional religions and, and, and especially esoteric practices, because it'll be like, well, wait a second, you metamodernists, this isn't anything new. In fact, I've heard that a lot. In fact, even the romantics were kind of, you know, fascinated by this because it's arguably a perennial facet of human culture that people grok the idea that, oh yeah, like there's this really incredible, immense, majestic, sublime beyond. And then there's this like, you know, thing that I'm enmeshed in and yet somehow there's really not a, a separation between those things. And like, that is the nature of many mystical sorts of experiences. And people have been doing that all the way back. I think that what the metamodern articulation of some of these ideas does though, is it makes all that very explicit. And again, you might be able to argue that this has been made explicit in certain other religious traditions as well. Um, but I think when you lay it all uh, out up front and kind of own it and express it that way, I think one, you're a lot less prone to, hopefully you're a lot less prone to people breaking that into this dualistic thing. Um, and I think that at the very least, even if it's just the fact that through misunderstanding or through oversimplification, there's come to be this perceived duality between imminent and transcendent. We need a corrective for that just pragmatically. You know, we need to kind of throw into the mix, wait a second, it doesn't need to be expressed that way. And um, so again, yeah, I think that that's very much what I see in these metamodern formulations of, of spirituality is understanding the transcendent as being within or in some ways, you know, within the imminent frame um, and finding transcendence there. So anyway, that part of your essay totally, you know, really resonated. Um, next part of the essay, I think we're at part four here. Um, abandoning anthropocentrism. Ah, let me try that again. Abandoning anthropocentrism. Uh, uh, the idea that basically human beings are, you know, fundamentally uh, the kind of goal and purpose uh, of the universe. Um, and you kind of compare this to sort of a Copernican revolution in our thinking. So talk a little bit about that, because this might, this might, uh, 
yeah, I have, I have, I have some questions about this. Mm-hmm. So the, the Copernican revolution was describing Kant and his bringing of subjectivity, kind of a switch from objectivity being at the heart to subjectivity being at the heart. And in a way that puts the human subject at the heart of, in the same way that the Copernican revolution puts the sun instead of the earth at the heart of the solar system. Um, this is putting the subject at the heart instead of the object, which I would say is a sort of postmodern move in a way. Obviously, Kant is a lot earlier than that. Um, well, sorry, just real quick, actually, it's interesting. I think it's Stephen Hicks in his book, and I'm no great fan of Stephen Hicks, but his book, What is Postmodernism? He traces the origins of postmodernism all the way back to Kant, and particularly that move that you're talking about. So it's, it's yes, he's super early. It'd be hard to call Kant a postmodernist, but the seed of postmodernism arguably is sort of there. But yeah, go on. And by making the most important thing, the human experience, there's a way when you center anything, you're, you're devaluing everything else. And by centering the human experience, we're, we're saying, okay, everything else is here for human experience. It's here for our subjectivity. And that sort of mindset is easily leads us to exploiting the stuff around us in the way that we have been doing for all of civilization or whatever. Um, and it sort of supports that. And there's this sort of shift to seeing humanity as part of the more than human world. And rather than, okay, there's nature, which is out there and humans, which are here, there's this intertwining of things. And I think one of the, the ways I now really like to talk about modern spirituality is about a return to relationship. I think this will be the section that I would add into the essay if I was going to write it now, which is about, you can kind of see each of the sections from that point of view now I think about it. And it's almost, okay, we've been out of relationship with the modern human natural world, if you want to call it that. And this, we want a spirituality that's going to get us back into relationship. And we've been out of relationship with ourselves because we're lonely and depressed and ill. And we've been out of relationship with the divine, with the all, with reality as a whole. And I think I like this frame because I do conflict work. And so it's almost, there's this conflict that's there with the natural world. There's this conflict with us in ourselves. And there's this conflict with divinity that we need to work through. And you know, when you have a conflict and it lasts for a really long time, it's not nice to be around. And it's almost, that's the world that we live in. It's the not niceness of these sort of blocks in Mm. the relationships that we have with life and with the parts of life. And this anthropocentrism thing, it's almost, okay, you want to heal a relationship with the natural world while saying we're the center of existence. It's sort of like, trying to heal your relationship with your wife while saying, I'm the most important thing on the planet. Mm-hmm. It's probably not going to work very well. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I love that too. The idea of kind of all of these things falling under the umbrella of, um, of relationship and a return to relationality um, because they're, they're all related to that as well, especially in the sense of like the dualism subject object. Um, you know, if I'm thinking of myself, 
as a subjective entity, just surrounded by different objects, then of course I'm objectifying everything. And then my relationship to everything becomes exploitative, pragmatic, utilitarian. Um, rather than if we think more in terms of processes, that I'm a process, our relationship is a process, I am surrounded and part of different processes, um, and bring in a whole, and I, you gesture at this, I think, later on when you talk about an epistemic revolution and whatnot, and there's all this whitehead that can come in here and everything, but like uh, shifting to a process-oriented framework rather than just sort of like, ah, yes, here's a thing and there's a thing and um, the sort of deadening that can happen from, from that kind of objectification um, is also part of all this. Um, a couple of things though. One is, so there's definitely a strong kind of humanist vein that runs in, 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 in my body. Um, there's, I think that's sort of a, against a certain kind of post-humanist, post-modernism that sort of like devalues humanity as being not only not all that special, but actually really destructive. And some people are actually like, you know, just completely fundamentally misanthropic about our, our species. And I find that to be destructive too. So I see that that's not at all what you're doing here. And I think you're making a really important point, but it's also interesting that, you know, there's a, there, there's, there's a way also in, in which I think it's important to, while we do decenter ourselves in the way that you're talking about, there's something about the teleology that we were talking about earlier and the complexification that I think does actually lead to um, thinking about humanity and human um, ways, human subjectivity, such as it's come to be through its course of complexification as being uniquely special as well. And I think that those things can be held simultaneously um, in the sense that they are, they're different. Not that, not that like the world is an apex that leads to humanity or anything like that here, because on the one hand, I'm saying that this sort of, complexification hypothesis and the teleology of complexification leading to deepening of consciousness. Well, in that sort of process, the human brain is sort of the most complex thing that is known to exist. Actually, that's not me. That's um, Shazan in cosmic evolution, you know, a pretty kind of hardcore um, you know, scientist. And so in that way, you can see a certain kind of, um, kind of holarchic depth related to the human subjectivity that is unique and special and I think should be regarded as such. But then there's this other thing that you're talking about, which is deanthropomorphization or deanthropocentrism that is more in the way that you're talking about. Do you see what I'm trying to parse there at all? And I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I wrote about this a little in my most recent article. And I had this catchphrase for it. I don't know why I like these catchphrases, but finding our humanity was what came to me, which is this idea that we don't really know what humanity's place is in the, the village of life yet. Mm. We're these teenagers who are sort of stroppy and kicking over the can and destroying the world around us. And everyone's debating, oh, is this teenager a good teenager or a bad teenager? Is there something wrong with this teenager? The sort of the therapist, there's a family therapist who's looking at the teenager being like, oh, there's a bit of a problem, something wrong with him. And when actually it was just a, a growing phase and the teenager hasn't found 
themselves yet. And we as humans haven't found ourselves yet. And I think that finding ourselves is fits with what you're saying, which is about, okay, one of the, one of the ways you find yourself is, is seeing what you have naturally, what, what your natural gifts are. And then it's, it's almost, okay, human beings have these natural gifts. We have complex thinking. We have, we can be awake like, and we can do things. We can make tools. We can organize. We can do things together. And those are the, the skills that we have. We have, for me, we have those for a reason and they're to, to give for humanity to be a gift based on the skills that we have. And I think that doesn't need to mean that we put us any place in being any better than any other species or part of life. It's almost, we have this gift, this possibility to serve mm-hmm. rather than the sort of other way of thinking about it is we're better. So we deserve more than other species. Right. It's more like we're unique and we have this gift to give and yes. it's beautifully meaningful to give it. So why not go for it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, actually, so that, that dovetails really well with the way that I think about this too, which is when I was reading about um, like regenerative permaculture, um, there's a notion of sort of like we can use our skills as human beings, as complex thinking people to be shepherds of biodiversity. You know, like there's a there's a way that regeneration and biodiversity can actually be enhanced by our you know, abilities rather than just, you know, thoughtlessly destroyed by humanity. And I thought that that was a very uplifting sort of message in terms of using our, our skills for good, you know, and not sort of just denigrating our entire species um, based on, you know, the kind of destruction that we do. But also this point that you're making here. Can um, I say a little bit about Yeah, 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 by all means, yeah. Um, that's just making me think of Paul Kraffel. I'm not sure how you say his surname, Kraffel. Um, which is someone I'd really recommend people check out. He's got this book called Seeing Nature, where he goes out on walks and he is trying to make little changes in the natural environment that boost the neg entropy. Oh, cool. So maybe he comes and puts a rock in a stream and then the stream splits and goes in two directions, which means that more water gets spread out over the, the cliff or whatever, and more, more life is able to blossom And I think that's an amazing example of a human being using our understanding and complex brains to bring more life, to allow more life to happen. Yes, definitely. Yes. And these are the sorts of things like the ecologies of practices could be around these sorts of things too. If we come to appreciate our ability to enhance negentropy, to enhance complexification and biodiversity, you know, like, again, what a beautiful what a beautiful uh, notion, part of our, 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 our uh, part of a narrative that could be meaningful in a meaning crisis of like, we don't have to be destroying things. We can be actively enhancing their creativity and complexification, diversification. Um, yeah. I was wondering what you think about the Christian narrative about, I can't remember how it's worded, but about the kind of caretaker, um, which... I get the impression is something that gets criticized a lot by environmentalists and stuff as kind of saying, Oh, religion just says God has given us the earth and we can do what we want with it. And maybe what it's really saying is that maybe that's part of the human role is this caretaker role. And 
bringing up, you know, how a good teacher sort of brings up the students or raises up everyone else. A good leader, I guess, raises everyone else up and brings them more into themselves and more allows them to more fully express who they are. It's almost that's the human role in the ecosystem is to allow to be the, this leader who allows everything else to flourish. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think that that is the, the, the idea of the gardener, right? I mean, and gardens are all about that, especially, you know, organic and gardens based on permaculture ideas where you're, you're bringing these things together, um, you know, using like, because there's this, there's this notion and it's a misleading one. I think that some people have that, Oh, well, if human beings weren't around, everything would just be better. Like whatever is natural is good. And um, I can understand a lot of that, but I think there's a much richer and more compelling way of seeing it that nature has processes and certain conditions um, can aid or hinder those um, complexification processes. And that as human beings with complex brains that are aware and able to make decisions and have you know, tactile sensibilities that can, you know, we're highly dexterous and all that. We can help create conditions for flourishing. Um, and of course, then when the biosphere is flourishing, then human culture, you know, flourishes on top of that stack. Um, so for me, I think of the garden metaphor as being sort of all about that idea and the degree to which that idea could be implemented in Christian circles through the, the notion of stewardship, which is what you're referring to, um, the notion of, of being good stewards. That's great to me, you know, um, uh, whether or not kind of in a kind of exegetical sense, if you look at the text, is that, you know, kind of the original meaning? Well, that's a bit of a stretch. But again, it's sort of like we need stories. And if, the, if that's a story that works to kind of bring that out, then, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. Um, yeah. So the next section here, which again, is weaving a bunch of these things together now is um, titled Healing the Wound of Dualism. Um, and we've already been talking about these various dualisms and dichotomies. You mentioned, you know, the, the dominant version of the two worlds mythology um, that separates transcendence and imminence. Um, but we've been talking about a whole bunch of other things as well. So yeah, talk about that as as being a function or a characteristic of metamodern spirituality. Yeah, so you could see this dualism between the subject and the object as being another two worlds mythology. It's one of the two worlds mythology, and it's really at the heart of a lot of people have said this, but really at the heart of Western thinking and Enlightenment and Descartes and all of that. And you could see how modernist and postmodernist approaches they focus on, on one end of the duality. So the modernist is focused on objectivity, on understanding the world out there, the things and the parts of things in the world out there, putting them together, understanding them through science and putting them together into technology to make a better world. That's the proposal of the modernist. And the postmodernist is really rejecting that. And instead of focusing on the objective world is focusing on the subjective world. And if you, you read a lot of postmodern literature, it's all about subjectivity, which is, fits with that Kant thing that we were talking about. And the metamodern shift is really about relationship. It's 
okay, there's this third thing. There's not actually two things, there's actually three things. And the third thing is the relationship between the subject and the object. And that they're always in relationship and they're always, there's some stuff that's coming from the subjectivity and some stuff that's coming from objectivity. And our experience is the child of that relationship. And there's someone called Karen Barad, who've written a really amazing book tying feminism and quantum physics and a lot of this metaphysical stuff. There's someone I would recommend. And I guess it's also tying in with quantum understandings where it's how we view reality and what reality is like uh, intertwined with each other. They're not two, it's not a separate thing. How we look at something affects what it is there. And it's almost I think this fits back in the proto-synthesis grand narrative part where it's like, okay, we're doing this science and it's kind of confirming this metaphysical way of thinking about things. And that's getting this, the proto-synthesis is sort of, oh yeah, maybe there's something here. And I talk about it in the essay in various other ways. There's like the having and the being modes of Irving Yalom. So you can talk about it from that perspective. You can talk about it about Dasein which is Heidegger's concept. And I think they're all pointing to the same thing, really. And I think a lot of my more recent work has been saying, okay, why, why do we create this dualistic way of seeing things? And it's almost because we, we think that there's something wrong in our experience. And so we need to We habitually judge experience in some way and create a dualism of good and bad or of this is this is okay this isn't okay and if we stay with our experience of a particular thing it sort of unfolds and produces its beauty mm. yeah i so a couple thoughts one is um okay so well okay yeah so a couple thoughts you 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 mentioned the having versus being mode. You also mentioned the transjective notion, which I get from Verveke. I'm not sure if that's where you're getting that too. I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm not sure if he even coined that phrase. I think he might have, um, or maybe it was already one that he's just using. But um, again, you know, as I'm going through this, uh, you'll make me think of something and be like, oh, that sounds something like something you know that Verveke was saying. And I'd be like, oh no, no, there, there you go. Like you got the transjective in there. So it's like this essay is just really great because it kind of weaves all these things together really nicely. Um, but this whole thing about subject object and whatnot is, is intriguing to me, deeply intriguing, actually. In fact, I'm, I'm kind of considering, I'm kind of plotting this book around looking at all of these issues through the lens of subject versus object relationships, because everything kind of seems to keep coming back to that. But, um, the, the way that we kind of cause these this wound of dualism to kind of keep occurring and then all the negative consequences that come from that um seems to me to lead again to the importance of of spiritual practice and something like meditation right where you're sort of taking those sorts of dichotomies into your awareness and kind of interrogating them maybe even you know transcending them um and so there's there there, there tends to be in certain a certain line of critique against, you know, uh, spiritual frameworks that are less focused on systems change and ethics and, and, and helping people in the world and, and seem to be more focused on things like meditation and, and you know, kind of awakening. 
uh, experiences. And yet, in my mind, they're kind of intimately bound up for just this sort of reason, right? That if we're walking around in the world as individuals with a kind of broken notion about what we think of as being subjects and objects and how we treat those things consequently, like you get enough of that going on, you're going to have a broken world. And so, you know, the only place to kind of heal that wound, that dualistic wound between subject and object is going to include the subject, right? And there's got to be a subjective component of like transcending that, that uh, limited view and things like meditation are sort of, you know, meant to uh, facilitate that. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on that, like where the subject object transcendence is, is bound up with certain spiritual practices and whatnot. Yeah. I want to come back to talking about it in terms of relationship, because you could almost see the dualistic thinking as being the, the block in these relationships that I've been talking about. It's when we get into thinking in a dualistic way in our relationship with each other, that creates this block where life can't throw, flow through us. The process of life, of the evolution of consciousness and cooperation can't move. The dualistic thinking is the, the stuck bit of coal in the river. And totally, I think, This I'm going to talk a little bit about the other section, which is inner work for global political transformation, because I think it fits really tight and tightly together, which is if you, you notice some of the problems in the world and you see this need for system change, and then you go out and do that, but you're doing that coming from this, the same dualistic mindset perspective, way of being, then anything you create is going to be coming from that mindset as well. And I think you can kind of tell when someone is, is coming from that mindset. Whenever they're, they're in judgment, they're saying that something is wrong or bad and they have this energy of, energy of negation, of rejection in them, that's when they're, they're fundamentally in a dualistic mode. When they're, in, when they're connected to value, so they're saying, oh, wouldn't it be great if the world could be like this? I really care about these trees. I want to protect these trees. They're not saying that anything is wrong with the outside world or with their experience. They're not going into dualistic thinking. They're an expression of life, an expression of care for something, an expression of love. And it's only by working our way through the blocks inside of ourselves, kind of healing that relationship with ourselves that we can do wise political action where we can actually transform the outside world. And I think I've had this insight and been developing it for a long time about just the interconnection between inner work and outer work and how, okay, mm. people get lost in the pure inner work and people get lost in pure outer work and the two need each other mm -hmm. in the same way we were talking about science and religion as being these separate paths that support each other it's totally the same thing. They're different domains and you can't do one successfully without the other. And I think, yeah, so recently I've had this idea in the last few days about the terrors. So you've got the outer terror, the outer work terror, which is we live in a collapsing civilization. Climate change is real and going to cause a lot of suffering and maybe the collapse of our Western world. 
And when you realize that and you look at different reports about it, it's this terror. It's like a horror in the outer world. And you want to do something about it. And when you try and do something about it, if you're honest with yourself, you'll probably realize the inner terror, which is not just the terror in the outside world, but there's a terror inside, which is the realization that you're out of control, that you make this intention for the new year to do, do all this great work, to do this activism, and you can't actually do it. You can't, you want to come from the place of love and express that in the world, but you end up being judgmental and hating people and pissing off your friends and your partner. And you do things that you know you don't actually want to do. And realizing that is this inner terror. And I think the people who we need to confront the meta crisis are the people who've seen both the terrors. If you've only seen one of the terrors, it's not enough. You need to have seen both because you, it's only through seeing the inner terror that you can have compassion for the people. And it's only through seeing the outer terror that you're actually going to be able to do anything about the matter crisis, mm. or like change the physical world out there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and part of that, the inner terror is like, you know, oh, I just saw this quote. I forget who said it. I'll put it, you know, in here, but um, this, it was something like most of the world's problems could be solved if people could learn to sit in a room by themselves <laughs> for like an extended period of time. Um, cause like the inner terror is right. You're, you're sitting there, you're not, you're not occupied, you're not distracted. So what do you do? You reach for your phone, right? You reach for distraction. You need, you need preoccupation because just to like sit with your own subjectivity is like, is like, you know, it can be a, a, a terror or at least oppressive in some way. And so people are always sort of looking outside of themselves to kind of like, you know, not the ecstasis of ecstasy, but the ecstasis of distraction. And, uh, and it's like, okay, you know, and, and, and it's interesting because it's those kind of compulsive, distractive um, behaviors then lead to the world that we get, right? Of like, oh, okay, I can't just sit by myself and like think, what's going on inside of me that's uh you know okay i've got to got to be on facebook got to be let me buy a new thing right let me you know plan a trip or and then it's just like this endless goes on and then it's like oh and then oh no now we're ruining the world and now that now the terror is out there but i can't you know and then you're yeah you're kind of stuck between two terrors um and the way that i look at all this is that like this is the crucial component that i think metamodern spirituality uh, brings to the crisis, right? It's like, we have, you know, as Verbeke will say, like, we know where to get knowledge, but where do you get wisdom? Like, we have a cognitive uh, capacity that, you know, that, that doesn't need help by and large, right? We're, we're, but, you know, new technologies are coming online every day. And like this, this stuff is being made incredible, uh, things are being done with, you know, it, it takes a capacity of thinking and, and complexity of knowledge that like, you know, is boggling. We got that. But then it's like, what do we do about all this other stuff? You know, the interpersonal stuff, the, the dealing with that inner terror, right? And like, we've got to be able to, to bring these things into alignment so that our kind of mental abilities is more in line with our, um, psychosocial spiritual abilities um 
that's at least for me why I think is like so crucial about this terrain of like, okay, well then what are those things that we need to bring up to speed to match our, you know, just exponentially um, uh, increasing kind of cognitive complexity and technology, um, which again, is kind of a big part of that essay, the wind. But another thing that you're bringing out is like the whole notion of the transpersonal, right? That it's like, the, the dualistic thinking of like, well, I'm a me and you're a you and like, you know, maybe we have shared interests or maybe we don't and all that sort of thing. That blockage is what stops a kind of appreciation for our transpersonal uh, connection and inner kind of, you know, relationship of these sorts of things. Um, and that we need to be able to expand our awareness of like, what we're focusing on, as long as I'm just focusing on myself and how things relate to me and can't get a bigger vantage on like the rest of how these things interrelate the relationship component of this, um, then we're in serious trouble. I was just thinking of, um, you know, I was driving by somewhere and someone said, oh yeah, um, they, that used to be, you know, like a, a, a public park, um, forest park, but then they tore it down and made a development. And then they very sincerely said, but don't worry, they, they put a new forest in somewhere else to, you know, so it kind of was all even in the wash, right? And what struck me about that was that the presumption that you could just create a forest somewhere, right, without having any understanding of like the deep root structures and like the deep, uh, you know, ecological relationships that only develop through long periods of time and that sort of a thing. There's just this notion of like, oh, well, you know, we can just do that over here. And to me, that just bespeaks a general um, limitation in being able to appreciate, yeah, what kind of, what lies below the surface of things that doesn't immediately seem applicable to us, right? Like we wanted, we want a, a, a housing development here. So that makes sense. But like, what are we not seeing? What do we not look at? Because we're, it's just not part of our ken. And that's the expansion of kind of, you know, conscious awareness that I think we need. But anyway, so what, whatever you're, what, what you're saying, this is just bringing all this up for me. Um, so I don't know. I love it. I think the thing that ties a lot of this together for me is about creating a wisdom culture. Maybe that fits really with, with the stuff from Veiki. Was it Veiki talking about that? And so we need these ecosystem of practices for me to create a culture that in, contains or holds the wisdom of how to live in harmony with life. And I had this story about elders and there's this amazing book by Maladoma Somme, where he's talking about the elders in his community. I think it's in Burkina Faso. And these are the people who, when someone, go, they call it going private, which is where someone in the community kind of rejects the community and starts trying to get profit for themselves, which is sort of what our civilization is about. <laughs> Everyone rejecting community life and going alone. And the elders are there to, holding the wisdom of how to, to live, and what it means to live in harmony with life, seeing that this person isn't living in harmony with life and then bringing them back into the fold or finding some way to coax them, to support them, to see that what they're doing is harming themselves as well. Mm. And you, you could see the grand narrative that we were talking about earlier. That wants to be a grand narrative that it's a wisdom, it, it's imbued with wisdom. And you imagine these old stories 
of indigenous cultures and stuff where they, the stories are communicating how to live in harmony with life and their wisdom stories. And our grand narrative wants to, to have that, it wants to have the principles. That's when mm. we go back to the principles thing where it's like, okay, the principles are how do we live in harmony with life? And then we put those principles into a story and we follow that story and we share that story and it's always changing and there's a never ending evolving thing. And we have ways to bring up children that bring them into the wisdom culture so that they're, they're also holding the principles of how to live in harmony with life. And they, there are things like adulthood initiations that support them in getting the wisdom they need to be a functioning member of humanity so that they can take up their place in the humanity, which is a contribution to the wider thing. And it's all these levels. And the, yeah, it's almost how can humanity learn to live in harmony with life again, with all of our new technology and new science. It's almost, okay, we could maybe do that. Maybe it's a debatable thing, but people could say, okay, maybe we could do that before. And now we've got all this new stuff. And how do we now move to a place where, okay, we've got the wisdom and we've got the science and technology and we're using it as part of our yeah. gift back to life. Exactly. A hundred percent. I think that that, that nails it on the head. Um, and uh, yeah, I think the, the cultivation, the formation or the formation and cultivation of that wisdom society, that wisdom civilization is really kind of the grand project of the grand narrative of, of metamodern spirituality, which needs to be rooted in the real complexification um, of the world, uh, which um, which arguably is, is one of the crucial things that that modern narrative lost. It's just this kind of simplistic, oh, this, this box fits here, this box fits here, and, and now we're all good. But now it's like, oh, wait, that box has like deep roots and that those roots form through eons of time. And it's just this like, Oh yeah, you can't just move these things around. Things are a lot more, uh, they're just deeper. They're more complex. They're more interrelated than, than we ever kind of initially thought. And now we've got to kind of level up again where that understanding kind of forms the foundation, I would say. Um, but We've gotten through about half of this essay. Um, I'd love to meet again and kind of go through the rest. Um, so if you'd be down for that, that would be, that'd be a lot of fun. Um, just cause you know, time being what it is. Uh, yeah, I'd love to. Awesome. Cool, man. Well, Hey, Julian Davey, thank you so much. This has been such a, such a pleasure. And, um, yeah, next time we'll, we'll go through the rest and, and kind of keep, um, you know, riffing on the materials in there and, uh, and kind of lay it all out. So um, until then, my friend, much love. Take care. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you later. See you soon. Bye.